So yesterday we uh, finished with the um, text that describes the Buddha's awakening, or at least one of the texts that I suggested is perhaps the most, um, the oldest one that we have. And one of the questions that came up in the afternoon was what was meant by his rather curious comment, um, if I were to teach this Dhamma, and remember he's explained this Dhamma as twofold, the understanding of uh, conditionality, conditioned arising on the one hand, and this um, experience of a kind of uh, stopping Nibbana, uh, nirvana, is really a stopping, the stopping of something, the stopping of a certain compulsive um, attraction, aversion, uh, pattern that in a way destabilizes our capacity to be, to be still and clear. Nibbana, remember, is not some sort of Buddhist heaven that one gets to in some transcendent state, but rather it's a possibility that is open to us all the time. And it comes and it goes. It's not permanent. Uh, There are moments in which that um, openness, that stillness, that clarity, that uh, experience in which we, we, we know for ourselves that we're not beholden to the um, impulse of going out and grabbing what it is that seems desirable. Or, on the other hand, uh, seeking to reject or, or get rid of what it is that we don't like. And, of course, what's, what we're doing in meditation is in many respects trying to uh, reach that kind of equilibrium, that equanimity. Perhaps we could call it a sort of uh, radiant equanimity from which we can live our lives unconditioned by that very deeply seated uh, pattern of habit. It's not easy. The Buddha suggests it's the most difficult thing to do in one's life, is to actually live from that space. And we may have found in the last days, as we've been sitting and walking, that as much as we um, would like to be equanimous and still and clear, that unfortunately just aspiring to or wanting that is not enough. That we may have the very deep um, and genuine and sincere um, wish to be still and focused and caring and sensitive. And yet, despite that sincerity and that, um, that honesty, something else takes over. And I think this is really one of the 
the most um, puzzling and also infuriating um, aspects of meditation is that we realize that at a very uh, deep level, uh, we're not in control. As long as we're going along with the stream of our, of our habits and our desires and our fears, it, we seem to have this sense that we're in charge. But once we uh, somehow resist that and try to not give in to those impulses, we realize how difficult it is. And I think it's for that reason that the Buddha says, if I were to teach this Dhamma, others would not understand me and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Uh, people just wouldn't get this. Now the problem with passages like this is you never quite know whether this is just Buddhist propaganda. In other words, what the Buddha understood was so extraordinarily far out that nobody could possibly understand it. It has the suspicion of being polemical. And I do think that that's legitimate. One needs to be on one's guard against um, passages that would seek to elevate the Buddha to a better status than his competitors. And in fact, that's one of the um, criteria for um, beginning to sort out uh, which of these passages in these texts are more reliable than less reliable. This goes back to a question that was asked earlier on. Um, you know, how do we sort out this great jumble of material? One of the things I learned from um, bi- biblical studies is that passages that are um, uh, the, the pa- passages we can have greater confidence in are those that would not have been in anyone's interest to add later. And we're going to come to some of these passages as, as we continue today. Passages in which it would have been in the Buddhist's interest to somehow add later, in other words, making the Buddha out to be really rather exceptional and Buddhism to be the bee's knees of all religions. Those sort of passages we would take with a little bit more caution. And this passage here might, might be one of them. But what's curious in this passage is it's mixed because the Buddha also admits to teaching would be wearying and troublesome. In other words, he seems to be experiencing a kind of hesitation, which is not what you would expect for someone who's just become a fully enlightened person. Surely they wouldn't be bothered by you know, being troubled or wearied or vexed. And yet this is admitted here, so possibly that aspect of the text is, is reliable. It, it gives the Buddha a certain humanity, So it's mixed. But the term that um, he then uses, um, as this text continues, he he describes what he's understood as uh, pati sota gami, 
which means going against the stream. That what is understood is somehow um, counterintuitive. Now what I was mentioning just now is again, I think, a, a way of understanding what it means to go against the stream. The stream, in this sense, um, is the, the current or the force of impulse, of habit, many of which are probably rooted in our biology, survival strategies, which are you know, perfectly okay. That's simply how we are. But one may, as it were, have an aspiration not to just go along with your fears and your desires and your hatreds and your pride, but to find a space within your experience in which you're freed from the power of those impulses and forces. And so when, for example, in meditation we're sitting there, we're trying to be focused on our breath or our feelings, whatever practice we're doing, and suddenly we find ourselves carried away into some fantasy, into some planning, or whatever it might be. That, I think, is what is meant by uh, the stream, which is kind of um, going in the opposite direction to our intentions. We, we, we experience that. At least I experience that. I don't know about you. But very often, we f- it almost feels as though we're swept away on a tide or a current um, that sort of catches us unawares. It's very fascinating to look at that process. It's, um, as soon as mindfulness somehow lapses, it's as though that opens the door to a whole current of other ideas and emotions that literally sweep us away. And this is sometimes called Mara Sota, uh, the stream or the current or the flood of Mara. And sometimes this goes on for a long time before we sort of come to and say, oh, right, uh, I'm at Guy House. I'm supposed to be meditating. Uh, yeah, what was it? The breath? And you sort of then sort of reconnect. And, and that I feel, those sorts of moments I think are very, um, very revealing. And also I think rather humbling. And in a way, the, the practice of meditation, this is something our Korean Zen teacher used to say. He said the real practice of meditation is coming back to the object of focus. It's, it's the practice of returning again and again and again. Coming back. Coming back to the breath. Coming back to the present moment. Coming back to the koan or whatever it is you're doing. It's this ability to return. It's a returning. It's a remembering as the word sati actually um, literally means. So we have this um, description here of uh, a person, in the Siddhartha Gautama, who's 
um, had this experience, and whether this is something built up over many years or whether it's a kind of you know, shocking epiphany that occurs one night, as tradition has it, we don't really know. But it puts him into a quandary. This experience has somehow now got him to some kind of resolution of his initial dilemma, of his primary questions. But then, of course, another question arises. You know, now what do I do? You know, what next? Do I spend the rest of eternity twiddling my thumbs? Or what? And the text then considers, considering this, my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. So his his initial response is, well, I'll just enjoy this. Now what happens in in, in the next sentence? And here we're going to jump into a different kind of discourse altogether. It says, Then because the Brahma Sahampati knew within his mind the thought in my mind, and he considered, The world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata inclines to inaction rather than to teaching. Then, just as quickly as a strong man might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm the Brahma Sahampati vanished from the Brahma world and appeared before me he arranged his upper robe on one shoulder as gods do and extending his hands in reverential salutation said venerable sir let the Buddha teach the Dhamma There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand. Now what on earth is going on here? (laughs) This is again a very good example of how these uh, suttas um, seem to effortlessly mix very different kinds of language. What we had yesterday was a fairly sort of precise, analytical account of a certain experience. I don't think there was anything said uh, that would strike us as being mythological or magical in any way. I mean, this is the, the strange thing about these suttas, if you've tried to read them. One moment you're reading something fairly straightforward something that you don't have to struggle with at all. And the next moment, a god appears, or Mara appears, or flowers start falling from the sky. And for the, presumably, the people who compiled these texts, that was completely unproblematic. Um, And it suggests um, they're inhabiting a world quite different from our own. It's not dissimilar to when you read um, Greek mythology, where you have Zeus and, and all of the other gods um, coming down to earth and interacting with the humans. Or in Indian literature, the 
the the uh, the Mahabharata or the the Ramayana, these great mythic epics in which there are people around. It is taking place in some sort of human geography, but the characters have descended from heaven and will then depart once their tasks are done. It's it's a sense of a world that's quite that's quite foreign to most of us now probably all of us, I suspect, in this room, um, we don't live in a world in which gods suddenly come from heaven and extend their arms and start speaking to us. So what does it all mean? Um, I think probably uh, today we would immediately start to read these texts as being symbolic. Uh, that's our first port of call. Um, we'd say to ourselves, well, this is not what literally happened, but it's a way of talking about uh, something that was going on uh, in the Buddha's experience. And it's speaking symbolically. So what does Brahma represent or symbolize? Now, Brahma... Um, as you're probably aware, is a very um, important deity within the Indian uh, pantheon, the Hindu pantheon. Brahma is sometimes described as the creator of the world, whereas Vishnu is its preserver and Shiva is its destroyer. Strangely, in these early Pali texts, you only ever hear of Brahma. Vishnu and Shiva are never mentioned. But Brahma is clearly associated with the creation. And you find this going back to the, the early Vedas and so on. So in other words, Brahma symbolizes something coming into being. The emergence or the creation of something. And I think what, in this context, we might understand by that is that we have uh, this person, the Buddha, um, who's come to some sort of deep understanding within himself and in a way, has, as, he, as he says himself, my mind inclined to inaction, to not doing anything. But at a certain point, um, something begins to emerge. A thought begins to arise, a feeling an awareness of others. And I think what it's describing here is how awakening or enlightenment um, is not uh, something that just goes on within the, the privacy of your own inner life, some purely private, uh, subjective experience. But in order to uh, be complete... It requires that one um, embody or express that understanding to others. So you may be familiar, for example, also with what um, in Buddhism are called the Brahma Viharas, literally the, the, the divine abidings or the, 
the abodes of Brahma. It's the same God. And these are considered to be love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, which again is fourfold. And if you look at the iconography of Brahma, Brahma has four heads, four faces, one, two, three, four. And in fact, sometimes the Buddha says that he dwells abiding one quarter with loving kindness, one quarter compassion, one quarter joy, one quarter equanimity, which is again a mirror of the fourfoldness of Brahma. So if Brahma uh, symbolizes um, creation, he also symbolizes love and compassion. And so perhaps the appearance of Brahma is a way of describing how love and compassion for others naturally begin to arise in the Buddha's mind. And so we have, in some ways, a rather ambivalent relationship to Brahma and the gods. Um, sometimes the Buddha almost makes fun of Brahma as being rather arrogant, as having a rather exaggerated sense of his own importance. I'm not going to give you these... I'm not going to read these texts out now, but there are a number of passages where Brahma is presented as someone who's rather deluded, who thinks he's created the world. Oh, yeah? Well, not really, says the Buddha. <laughs> and again, you have to put this in the context of, of, of that time in India, where the power of the Brahmins, the traditional um, priesthood, in Indian caste system was, be, was being challenged. We're in a period of time where the authority of the priesthood uh, is no longer being taken for granted. And the priests, remember, were those who maintained harmony uh, in the world through making sacrifices to the gods. So the Buddha is born in a time, as we've already mentioned, in which another kind of social and economic and political order is beginning to emerge. And human beings are, in a sense, taking control. That there's, there's a suspicion that, in fact, we need constantly to be placating the gods. And the Buddha is quite critical of this. And yet, at the same time, the gods are still around. The Buddha doesn't reject the existence of the gods. They're there, but they're somehow now becoming marginalized. And so the whole of early Buddhism is in a way a kind of a struggle to come to terms with this, um, this transitional period in which society is shifting away from uh, a God-centered or a gods-centered uh, understanding of the world to one in which uh, human beings uh, are, take, are, 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 are taking charge with the emergence of these cities, with the emergence of monarchy, with the emergence of um, a much more wealthy mercantile culture, the beginnings of empire are all beginning to start around this time. 
In any case, we could go on and on about that, but I'm not going to. But I think what it points to, um, this whole parable of, of Brahma, is that um, the Buddha is uh, coming to terms with his responsibility, that his, uh, t- uh, his understanding is one that entails or leads to uh, a new engagement with his world. And so once Brahma, or love and compassion, let's say, have given him the inspiration, uh, the motive, uh, to go out and do something, then he casts about in his mind for whom might actually uh, understand what he's going to say. So he thinks, well, maybe my two teachers who taught me these deep, concentrated meditations. But then he realizes that they're actually no longer alive. Then he thinks of the people he did asceticism with, these five monks. And he learns that they're living uh, near Varanasi, or Banaris, and so he sets out to, 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 to find them. And this is what then leads to um, the beginning of his uh, teaching career. And I'm not going to go into all of the de- details of uh, the story, but basically he leaves what is now called Bodhgaya and walks probably for about two weeks uh, until he gets to the Ganges. He would have had to have crossed the river. He would have been in the old city of Varanasi, which even in his day was the holy city of the Brahmins. And then he tracks down these five uh, friends of his who are living in a place called Isipatana, which we now call Saranat. And they're staying in a deer park. And it's to these uh, five people that he begins teaching. And what he teaches, at least as it's come down to us, um, is called the, the, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, which means the discourse um, of setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, which again is the symbolic way that describes um, the, the, the initiation, as it were, the beginning of his communicating what he's understood. And I think in many ways, and we'll see as we get to the end of this text, it's made quite explicit, that it's um, only really once he's put his understanding into words that he can consider himself to uh, have achieved a complete waking up or awakening. That the awakening, therefore, is not reducible to some kind of inner experience, but it's only, as it were, complete when it's found um, uh, a form in the world, an embodiment, uh, words. In other words, words, in other words, when it's found a form of words, which means that it's been communicated to someone other than yourself. In other words, when his, uh, his insight has uh, been given away 
Now, I think in, in some regards uh, this is true um, perhaps of any kind of uh, inner experience that we, we have. Um, you might, for example, in your meditation have some sort of uh, insight. But it's often only when you come to articulate that insight, either by explaining it to someone or telling someone about it or writing it down or, or writing a poem that it somehow becomes complete. You'll probably often, at least I've, I've often had this experience, where I think I've understood something really profound uh, and really clear, but when I try to explain it, it all comes out muddled. What I thought was luminously um, <laughs> clear to me turns out not to be so clear at all. At other occasions, it's the opposite. We find that uh, once we put it into words, it actually um, helps us understand what it is we've understood. When you have to communicate something, that's often the way in which you learn yourself what it is that's been experienced. And I think for many people who work as teachers... And I've certainly found this myself. Uh, that teaching is my preferred way of learning. That I learn the most, in a way, by having to teach. It's not as though I know everything in my inner experience somewhere. I just have to sort of spit it out. In the actual act of forming words, giving expression, communicating to others the understanding sort of crystallizes or congeals uh, into something uh, much clearer for myself and hopefully for others too. So in other words, understanding is not something purely subjective, but it achieves its uh, uh, resolution or its completion through being expressed. So I'm not sure I find it difficult at least to understand psychologically that this archetypal experience of the Buddha sitting beneath a tree and having this enlightenment, whether in fact in that moment he did in fact you know, have a fully worked out understanding of what we now call Buddhism. I doubt it. I suspect that that understanding evolved and developed as he sought to communicate what he was doing and what he was understanding. It's through that dialogue, through that interaction, that his own understanding is illuminated. So what I'm going to do today, and um, will continue tomorrow, is to slowly try to work through this first uh, discourse, this first sermon. But I'm only going to cover the very first bit this morning. So this is how the text begins. Um, it's unlikely that what has come down to us, and it's a very short text, just two or three pages in English. It's unlikely that what we're hearing is a, um, a, a direct transcript of what was said. You know, if the five ascetics 
had had a tape recorder and recorded it, it's unlikely that what this text says would come out verbatim. Very unlikely. I suspect, and if if you if you read this text, it very much has the sense of uh, a piece of, uh, of thinking that has been worked and reworked and reworked and reworked. It's very polished. It's very concise, which is rather uncharacteristic, actually, of many of the Buddhist uh, uh, discourses, which often are rather rambling and disconnected and patchy. This text is very, very clean. So that, to me, gives the impression it's something that the community would have worked on for a long time. And as we'll see to you tomorrow, scholars have analysed it and discovered there are different layers within it, linguistically, that show that it's been built up and, 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 and developed over time as well. So this is how the Buddha begins. He says there are bhikkhus, the bhikkhus refers to the five monks, two dead ends which should not be pursued by one who has gone forth. Which two? Addiction to pleasure through indulging in sensuality, which is low, village-like, pertaining to the unawake, undignified, and unfulfilling. And addiction to self-punishment, which is painful, undignified, and unfulfilling. The, the, the middle way, bhikkhus, awakened to by the Tathagata, the Buddha, does not lead to these two dead ends, but makes for vision and knowledge is conducive to calming, lucid understanding, awakening, and nibbana. And what, bhikkhus, is this middle way? It is just this noble eightfold path. Right vision, right thought, right speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So these are the first words of the first discourse. And as we can see quite clearly, it's the middle way, it's the Eightfold Path, which avoids, and this is what he adds here, which is in a sense I think very striking, that avoids two dead ends. So he starts, basically, by describing dead ends. Now, this is often, this, this word anta, which I've translated as dead end, which follows I.B. Horner's translation, is, is often rendered extremes, the two extremes, the middle way between two extremes. Um, I don't think that's really quite right. Um, it's not as though these things are extreme, although of course they can be. But the word anta um, is a very common Indian word, a Sanskrit word, Pali word. For example, Vedanta. It's the same word, anta, 
Veda Anta. Anta means the end of the Vedas. In other words, the culmination or the final point at which the Vedas reach in the Upanishads. It's the same word, Anta. So there are two Anta, dead ends. I think I mentioned yesterday that Mara, the demonic, is also uh, described as Antaka, the one who imposes Anta, limits, ends, dead ends. And since Mara literally means the one who kills, is associated with the word death, then Anta, I think quite nicely, translates as a dead end. And remember, a dead end is a path that actually doesn't go anywhere. Now, you don't get that sense if you translate it as an extreme. Uh, An anta means um, something that blocks you. So, a middle way, again, is playing on the same metaphor of the path, except it's a path that goes somewhere rather than a path that comes to a dead end. And what the Buddha is suggesting here is that one of the the, the root causes of our dissatisfaction and frustration in life is that we expend a lot of energy trying to achieve certain goals, but very often we come to a dead end, even if we achieve the goal. Um, We get the satisfaction of having done that. We then find that we're back where we started. That we kind of expending all this energy to get somewhere, and yet, at the end of the day, we're back where we began. And again, not necessarily literally, but in a kind of existential sense. I think a lot of people experience this when they uh, um, they come to retirement. Um, that uh, you have all these expectations about you know what you'll be doing when you retire, but when you actually get to that state, you find that you're back to where you began in some way. So I think, again, it's a very powerful metaphor, a very powerful image, and I don't want to try and exhaust it by explaining it. But, um, again, I think it's a useful image to reflect on, to, to meditate on, and perhaps to notice also in our own lives. You see, I think for the Buddha, uh, attachment and, and, and aversion and pride and, and jealousy, all of these things that we work with, are in a sense dead ends. They, they give the impression of leading somewhere, but actually they don't. At a deep level, they don't really get us anywhere. We just go round and round in circles. So uh, this middle way the Buddha is speaking about is one that avoids dead ends. Now, the per- he says that the two dead ends should not be pursued by one who has gone forth. 
Um, again, this is a rather clumsy uh, expression in English. But again, it refers back to what we spoke of yesterday, a person who's left behind the securities of the domestic life and has set out on a quest, whether we take that literally or symbolically, and I think for most, 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 for most of us we'll take this symbolically, that you know, for whatever reasons we've decided to embark on a spiritual, philosophical journey of some kind. Certain questions have become sufficiently urgent in our lives to leave behind the consoling certainties that we might have been comfortable with up to a certain point. And now we embark on the open road, leaving behind the life of the home which is covered with dust, as they say. So someone who's taken that step does not pursue, to, does not pursue dead ends. That's kind of the rule of the game. And, and it's kind of obvious in a way because the road that's open is one that is open. It keeps going, like life, rather than getting caught up in certain fixed uh, conditions or ideas or beliefs or whatever it might be. A bit like a place we spoke of yesterday, is a dead end. Now, the way he describes these dead ends, um, again, if, if, you've done, if you've studied anything about Buddhism, you'll have heard about these. One is addiction to pleasure through indulging in sensuality. The other is addiction to self-punishment. Now, usually... Uh, addiction to self-punishment is understood as self-mortification and the examples that are almost invariably given are of people who engage in extreme ascetic practices in India. In other words, when you've realized that endlessly seeking fulfillment through sensory indulgence doesn't work, then obviously the next thing you do is stand on one leg for 15 years. <laughs> or stare at the sun for hours on end. Or, or lie on beds of nails. Um, but I'm afraid that that probably doesn't apply to most of us anymore. It's unlikely that that'll be um, the step we would take. So what does it mean for us now? What is the the dead end of, 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 of self-punishment. Well, I think we actually have an answer, at least one answer, uh, within the, the suttas themselves. There's um, a passage um, in a text called the Udana, which is a small collection of little, uh, usually quite brief verses and, and uh, bits of prose. And here we get, a, I think, a very illuminating account of what these two dead ends are. Um, I'm going to read it out. Those who insist on training, on virtues and vows, pure living, celibacy, and observances... This is the first dead end. Those who say, there's nothing wrong in sensual desire, 
That is the second dead end. By not penetrating these two dead ends, some hold back and some go too far. Um, That's a translation I've recently made myself. Um, The Pali isn't that difficult, and that's what it says. Uh, And this is a little bit troubling, because elsewhere in the texts, the Buddha seems to be rather keen on on sikha, or training, or brahmacharya, celibacy. These are considered to be good things. And so it comes as a bit of a shock when you read a passage that those who insist on training, virtues and vows, sila, pure living, celibacy and observances, which means sort of religious observances. This is the first dead end. And what's going on here? Now this is a good example of a text that celibate monks would not have added later. (laughs) And so it has a good chance of having escaped the censor's scissors and having come down to us as possibly something that goes back to the Buddha himself. I'd like to believe that. I think this is a very good candidate for something early. And also explains, for the first time, in language that we can relate to, what self-mortification means. It doesn't mean standing on one leg for 15 years, but basically it means becoming overly identified and attached to religion. In other words, taking morality and self-discipline and celibacy rather too seriously. Becoming um, attached, becoming preoccupied, and as we can see in, in so many cases, becoming rather holier than thou. Becoming convinced of one's own moral and spiritual superiority. This is the dead end of religion and it's, it's with us today as much as it has been in the past and then in contrast to that you have the dead end of what we might call worldliness the kind of Don Juan type uh, endless quest for sensual uh, gratification So in other words, the Buddha seems to be suggesting that his middle way is a middle way between worldliness and religion. Religion in the sense of being uh, insistent upon the pursuit of certain spiritual religious norms, uh, seeker, training, uh, silabata, of virtue and vows, a jivitam, what I think in English used to be called a living, you know, I, in other words, a, a religious livelihood, celibacy, brahmacharya, uh, and ob- observances or devotions or rituals. Now, the Buddha isn't just saying those things, period. He's saying uh, the word is sikasasa, Sasa means to insist on something or to consider that thing to be of central importance. That's what it 
kind of literally means. So it's not denying the value of these things, but it's recognizing that if you become self-identified with them, in other words, if you make them into your new place, then they become a dead end. In the same way that if you identify totally with just living your life in order to maximize your own pleasure, that's also a dead end. So we have here, I think, a a sense of a path. And remember, when the Buddha describes this Eightfold Path, um, he describes it as something that involves the whole of your life. The way you see things, think about things, speak, act, work, etc. So he's suggesting a full human engagement with life but one that steers clear of both the excesses of the world and the excesses of religion. And this, I think, is one of, perhaps, one of the clearest statements that I'm aware of, where we seem to be questioning here whether the Eightfold Path, whether the Dhamma, is, in fact, a religion. If it's not more a way of life. And it's also clear, we'll come to this later on, that when the Buddha describes the Sangha, the community, he doesn't just refer to monks and nuns. The Sangha uh, is composed of all of those who have entered the Eightfold Path, whether they be uh, monks or nuns or lay men or lay women, it doesn't matter. In other words, he has a sense of community that is not defined by a certain religious lifestyle at all. But that's a point we'll come back to. But all of this, I feel, uh, conduces towards um, uh, an, an image of what a human life can be that is somehow uh, free from uh, those two possible modes of excess. And I'd like to to finish with another text that I feel is pointing in much the same uh, direction. Uh, This is a text that, again, I've only discovered fairly recently, although it's one of these things I must have read many times. But when I read it recently, it, it rather struck me in a different way. And I went back to the Pali and, and, and retranslated it. Um, where is it? Now, this is from the Sanyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses uh, of the Buddha. And again, what's interesting about this passage is it's the Buddha's reflecting about his own process, his own story. It's another account of the awakening. While I was still a bodhisattva, in other words, someone in search of awakening, uh, it occurred to me, now what is the delight of life? What is the tragedy of life? What is the emancipation of life? Then, because it occurred to me, 
the happiness and joy that arise conditioned by life, that is the delight of life. That life is impermanent, dukkha, and changing. That is the tragedy of life. The removal and abandonment of grasping at life, that is the emancipation of life. So long as I did not know the delight, the tragedy, and the emancipation of life, I did not claim to have found a peerless awakening in this world. Now here too, I feel, we are talking about a middle way. And what is particularly striking about this passage, at least in my own estimation, um, is that it, um, it, it, it explodes this cliché that you, we hear so often in Buddhism, that life is suffering. This is clearly not what the Buddha is saying here. This is a much more nuanced, uh, middle-way type approach. He's basically saying, okay, what is delightful in life? And what is tragic? And what is it that liberates us? And he acknowledges that the joy and happiness that arise conditioned by life, that is the, uh, the delight that we can experience. And at the same time, though, there's something almost inevitably tragic built into that experience. Because whatever we enjoy, whatever is beautiful and delightful and so on, that is something that is impermanent and changing and in that sense you know tragic dukkha we lose it it disappears it causes us grief and 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 and, and uh, distress perhaps and yet the two things go together and what is problematic what is problematic in life is not that there is pain that's unavoidable not that there is dukkha what is problematic is our relationship to life which is governed by what he calls in this passage chandaraga which I've translated as grasping chanda means yearning raga again is a classical Indian expression meaning desire so perhaps the two together we can translate as, as grasping. And emancipation, nisaranam, is not emancipation from life, from birth and death, as is often explained, but it's emancipation from chandaraga, from grasping, from wanting this and not wanting that. It's, again, what we've been describing quite a bit already, this kind of push-pull mechanism. I want this, I don't want that. So what this comes down to is, um, again, a kind of equanimity that is able to enjoy the delights and the pleasures and the happiness of experience or of life, and yet at the same time does not deny or reject or suppress 
that within that experience there's also a tragic dimension. I think in some ways um, this corresponds perhaps to our experience very often with uh, great art. Um, If we go to watch Hamlet, for example, it's not the same as going to watch Mamma Mia. (laughs) Just to take an example. Um, And yet it's also not something that we don't enjoy. Um, We can watch Hamlet, which is basically a tragedy, um, which is both something that is very enriching, it's, 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 it's deeply satisfying, and yet at the same time, it is deeply tragic. And I think we can say the same about painting and poetry and so, and so many things, that the ones, the, 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 those forms of art that really speak to our human condition are ones that somehow unify a sense of, um, I wouldn't exactly say joy, but in a sense joy, but a joy that is tinged, that is rooted in a depth of tragedy as well. That's the sort of experience in which we learn something about ourselves, not in in an intellectual way, but somehow those experiences resonate within us at a pitch uh, that is deeply rewarding, deeply satisfying. Uh, When you come out of such a performance or from a gallery or from a reading of a poem, um, if it's really affected you, it affects your whole sense of the world. A bit like when you sit and just meditate and you notice your breath and your body and your feelings, and when you go outside, the world is somehow brighter, less dusty. So strangely, by letting go of this grasping and this self-centered attachment and aversion to things, we actually open up a much richer experience of of our own life and the life of others, and the life of the trees, and the plants, and the birds. The world has become enriched. And at the same time, though, it's become that much more poignant. I think the word poignant, in some ways, captures something about the word dukkha, that the word suffering misses. There's a poignancy, something that almost... Um, you know, brings tears to our eyes in a way. Uh, the, the, the sheer wonder of the thing and its, its beauty is inseparable from the fact that it will pass, that it will not last. Um, Ajahn Sumedho uh, once gave a very good example of this. He says, when you go into a, into a hotel or a restaurant, you sometimes see a beautiful pot of flowers on the table and you go towards them and as you get a bit closer you realize well maybe they're not real <laughs> and then some nowadays they're so good 
You suddenly you actually find yourself touching them. Mm-hmm. You've done that with the leaves and the petals. And as soon as you realize it's plastic or cloth, you're disappointed. But from, that's a bit illogical in a way, because surely something that will last and not decay, shouldn't that be actually more attractive and better in some way? But it's not. The, the beauty of a vase of flowers lies very much in the fact that we know not just intellectually, but almost somatically, we know that they will wither and fade. So, And again, Japanese haiku poetry is very good at this, when it doesn't lapse into kitsch, which unfortunately it does a lot. But, you know, the the Japanese fascination with the, the, the cherry blossoms, the autumn leaves, great beauty, but a beauty that is very, very fragile, very, very poignant, very tentative, something that won't last. And my sense is that what's being described here uh, is pointing to something like that. But unfortunately, I think Buddhism has sometimes become over-invested in its commitment to suffering (laughs) and pain. And this is a reflection, perhaps, of its um, idea it's being too much identified with the Indian ascetic tradition. This world-renouncing, life and death is a veil of tears, let's get off the wheel of sangsara and um, be done with it all. Which is, a, which is a feature that runs deeply through Buddhism. But suddenly you come across a passage like this one, which again, wouldn't have been in many people's interests to have added later, because it's a clear affirmation of delight. And yet, fortunately, it survived, albeit on page 1,136 (laughs) of a very long book. So, thank you. So tomorrow we'll we'll continue looking at this uh, same... Uh, first discourse. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.